Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We are beginning the book of Exodus together. But since we're in the third year of the triennial cycle, it means that we are in the last third of every portion, including the last third of the first portion of the book of Exodus. And by going to the last third, we missed a lot. So let's just remember what happened in the first third of this Parsha. Uh, We have the scene open where we have a Pharaoh who knew not Joseph, Uh, The Hebrews have been uh, declined. Uh, They have been, what's the word? Demoted. No, they have been, they've descended into slavery uh, and are being uh, terribly oppressed by Pharaoh and the entire system. They are brick makers. That is their work. Um, and they are, get punished as soon as there's any kind of challenge. Their situation gets worse. Uh, so, for, first of all, we have, they have descended into slavery. They've been in slavery for 400 years. Moshe is born at the time that the edict has gone out to drown every firstborn in the Nile. He is placed in a basket by his mother when he is several months old, when she can no longer keep him and his identity a secret. She uh, lines a basket with bitumen so it will be waterproof. She places him in the basket uh, and in the reeds and she has Miriam keep watch over the baby. Miriam watches as uh, the basket makes its way along to where the daughter of Pharaoh bathes. Possibly worships. Right? The Nile was a god in Egypt. Possibly she comes down to worship with her maid servants uh, and of course she sees the basket, she opens it, she takes out the infant, and we don't know why, but she says this must be one of the Hebrew babies. She, at that moment, has a choice. She is daughter of Pharaoh. Pharaoh was a god in Egypt, and his word is divine law thereby, and she has a choice to either follow her father's command. If she thinks this is a Hebrew baby, what should she do with it? Drown it drown it or bring it to the authorities to deal with and she does not she has a moment of compassion she feels compassion for the boy as Torah tells us and she and Miriam who's watching all this says shall I fetch a wet nurse for you so it is Miriam who actually suggests that Pharaoh's daughter will be keeping the baby so um, so she fetches her own mother Yocheved to nurse the baby for the daughter of Pharaoh. And Moshe grows up in the palace, grows up as a son of Pharaoh. Uh, and uh, he's, brought, he's brought to live permanently in the palace when he is weaned. So probably about three or four years old. Uh, and he grows up in the palace uh, and he one day witnesses something happening between a uh, taskmaster and a Hebrew. And uh, he loses his temper and he kills the taskmaster now he's a fugitive you're not allowed to kill somebody who works for pharaoh so he becomes a fugitive he runs uh, to eventually he comes to Midian where he meets the daughters uh, of the local high priest and they are watering their flock and of course they're at a well of course he meets them at the well and of course he intervenes to help them uh, and they run home to their father to say this lovely handsome looking Egyptian guy helped us so the father invites Moses in Moses marries one of the daughters which this is Jethro the high priest of Midian he marries Jethro's daughter Tzipora they are Midianites. They are not Hebrews. We're not sure. Sh- we, are, we are not having this conversation. <laughs> um, I mean, it's a, it's a conversation to have, but we, we don't know. We, we really don't know. This is like Joseph. Did Joseph consider himself a Hebrew? Like, we don't know. The, I'm someone who holds that Moses doesn't know he's a Hebrew he he's until 
the theophany at the bush. So that's my theory, and I like that theory. It makes the story a lot better for me um, because it means he acts out of a sense of injustice to whoever he sees being beaten, not just because it's his kinsman. We know it's his kinsman. It's the, it's the um, omniscient narrator that says Moshe sees one of his kinsmen being beaten, but we have no indication that Moses knows that he's a Hebrew. Um, so, so he intervenes, so now he's, so, so he's in Mid- oh, oh, so he's in Midian. He's, while he's working for his father-in-law in Midian, uh, he tends sheep for his father-in-law. If you're going to be a leader of the people, you have to first be a shepherd. <laughs> right? <laughs> Moses, David, Jesus. You have to be a shepherd first. So, you, um, so we have him working for his father-in-law, Jethro. One day while he's dealing with the sheep, there's, he sees a bush on fire, and rather than do what most of us would do, which is get those flammable sheep out of there, he turns to look at what's happening. It turns out it's a theophany. God speaks from within the bush uh, and commissions Moses to go to Egypt and, right, and challenge Paro. During that theophany, which is still in the first third of the first part of the book of Exodus, um, or the first two-thirds. Um, during that theophany, God says, I am the God of your ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So for some of us, this is the first moment that Moshe knows his ancestors are, in fact, Abraham, Isaac, and Joseph. So, I mean, it could be that he knew all along and was raised knowing he was a Hebrew, but I find it difficult to believe that the daughter of Pharaoh would tell anybody that she had rescued a Hebrew baby and didn't kill it. So at what point would she do that? At his bar mitzvah? Like when, you know, when would she tell him, by the way, here are your adoption papers, you know, like you were in the water. So I just, I find it hard to believe there would have been a reason for her to tell him that. Um, So in either case, he's commissioned. And so now we're at the situation where Moses knows he has to go Challenge Paro. He tries to get out of it, but he is successfully commissioned. Because you just don't argue with Yerevah. Uh, well, you do actually if you're Moses, but um, but he loses and he and he gets commissioned. So now we have Moshe needing to go ask his father-in-law for permission to leave his household, and that is where we're picking up the story. <laughs> so Moshe goes to his father-in-law, who here is called. Yeter. Yeter. Other places he's called Yitro. So he's Yeter here and he says to him, let me go back to my kinsmen in Egypt and see how they are faring. Is that why he's going back to Egypt? No. no. <laughs> so why doesn't he tell his father-in-law the truth? Because his father-in-law would think he's crazy. Because <laughs> if he told his father-in-law, I'm going to challenge Pharaoh and, re- and free all the slaves of Egypt. Yeah. His father-in-law might have thought him crazy. Okay, so he thinks he's crazy. Who cares? He put his daughter in. Uh... <laughs> he might not give his permission if he thinks Moshe is going to put his family in danger. He might not give his permission for them to go. Uh, is one way of understanding that, right? So, uh, one of my commentaries said that um, that he modestly veils his true motive, pretending that he wishes to see. Uh, how his uh, in-laws were, I mean, how his relatives were faring because he's being humble, that he doesn't want to brag that he's now the commissioned prophet, the commissioned savior, right? And that he doesn't want to brag to Jethro. He's just going to quietly go do what he needs to do. Possibly, possibly Moshe doesn't believe that Moshe is going to free the people, right? Possibly Moshe still thinks this voice that, is talking to him is nuts, right? That there's there, there's no way, right? So we we so there's lots of reasons that it might be, but he he says he's going to check on his relatives, and Yitro says, "Lech l'shalom, go in peace." So God says to Moshe in Midian, "Go back to Egypt, for all the men who sought to kill you are dead." So. 
Maybe Moshe, maybe God knows that Moshe is nervous, right? That he's still a fugitive, technically. Like, why should he go back and put his own life in danger? He can't rescue the people if they arrest and kill him first. So God assures him that everyone who sought to kill you is dead. So Moshe takes his wife and sons. This is the first time we're getting a plural, two sons. So we never heard about the birth of Eliezer. We just know of the birth of Gershom. So he, but he clearly has sons. He mount, they mount them, right, on, on donkeys. And Moshe, it says here, that he took the mateh ha'elohim, the mateh of God, biado. This is so terse. There's no descriptors here. There's no description. There's no explanation. But most likely, this is already a tradition, and we've lost the other material around it. But that clearly there was, everyone understood what Mateh Elohim meant, the Mateh of God, right? That it was already something that had a lot of description. Later legend gives this a lot of description, that it was made out of sapphire and blah, 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 and it was heavy and it had the name of something God inscribed on it. Like, so, but due to the amount of material around it later, we, we have every reason to believe there was some tradition around this rod that, that, that it's, it's like the terebinth of Mamre, right? That when Abraham is sitting at the terebinth of Mamre, everyone knew what that was. All right, 21. It's interesting when God, God is speaking, Yudhe is speaking to Moses in no particular place. I mean, it's just in Midian. Mm-hmm. It's not. It doesn't say in a dream. Did the rabbis figure out where he was? They're he not was interested. Just in he was just, he was just in Midian, somewhere, somewhere, Connecticut, doing something. Do we know where Midian is? Yeah. Today, I mean, where mm-hmm. is he? Near Detroit. No. Yes, we know where Midian is. All right. Yeah, right. And Yudhe Bavhe said to Moses, When you return to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the marvels that I have put within your power. I, however, will stiffen his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says Yudhe Bavhe, Israel is my firstborn son. I have said to you, let my son go that he may worship me. Yet now you refuse to let him go. Now I will slay your firstborn son. Okay. So this can look a little bizarre here. Like why, why is God talking to Moshe about what God's going to do? It's like, it's just an odd, it can look really odd, but it's not going to look so odd when we're done. Um, it has to be here. It sets up exactly what comes next. And God said to Moshe, when you return to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the marvels that I have put within your power. So Moshe is going to be given the power to confront Pharaoh on behalf of Yudhe right? Going to perform wonders, confront Pharaoh. I, however, will stiffen his heart so that he will not let the people go. That's another conversation. Maybe you can have that with Rabbi Hyman next week. <laughs> when you get more of this, um, I, I'm prepared to have a little bit of it, but not a lot because we have a lot of material to do. So then you shall say to Pharaoh, right? Once God stiffens Pharaoh's heart, you shall say, Who? Moses is going to be directed to say to Pharaoh, Thus says Yudhe So Moshe is going to give him the power to confront Pharaoh. Pharaoh's going to say no. Then Moshe is supposed to say, on behalf of Yudhe Vavhe, Israel is my bechor, my firstborn. So this is God speaking through Moshe to Pharaoh. Israel is my firstborn. And I've said to you, let my son go, that he might worship me. And you, Pharaoh, refused to let him go. So now... I'm going to slay your firstborn. Okay. That's where we are. That has to happen. That has to go there for us to understand anything about what happens next. Because what happens next is a bizarre scene that we're going to unpack. At a night encampment on the way, Yudhe Vavhe encountered him and sought to kill him. 
So Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched his legs with it, saying, You are truly a bridegroom of blood to me. And when God let him alone, she said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. Okay. We good? That's weird. We good? We good? We good? All right. So, what did we just have? We just had Moshe challenging Pharaoh, saying on behalf of God, Israel is Bechori, is my firstborn. I've asked you to essentially deliver my firstborn. You said no, so now I'm going to take your firstborn. Okay. The agent of that is who's involved in this next scene. So at a night encampment, this is not something unusual to us, is it? The night encounter is a very common motif of the hero narrative, right? We have it with Jacob, right? And we have, we have it later in the Hebrew Bible as well, outside of the five books of Moses two other times. So um, you wouldn't know those texts necessarily, but um, so this is, this is a common motif, the night encounter. So <coughs> makes perfect sense at a night encampment on the way. yud hey vav hey sought to kill him. So now we have to figure out who he is. Who's him? What are the only possibilities? Could be Moses. Could be Moses. Who else could it be? Sons. Well, God wouldn't seek to kill God's self. No. Who? Who's the him? God sought to kill him. Who's him? It can. It can only be Moses or one of his sons. That's all, those, those are the only people it can be. All right. So not too many possibilities, right? It's either Moses or it's one of Moses' sons. We don't know which. So is there something missing here? So, well, obviously, <laughs> there's stuff missing here. Or it doesn't matter who he is. Right? Oftentimes when we want to get one of those night encounter, gaudy, theophany kind of things, remember, it gets all tangled up because it doesn't matter if it's the angel speaking or God speaking. It doesn't matter. Right? Um, it's kind of written confusing on purpose because it's a divine encounter. And by definition, that's not normal, right? It's not reality as we know it. So often Torah uses this kind of tangled, not clear references um, to give us that sense of it's a non-usual encounter. Or it does matter, but everybody already knew who he was. It's a very famous story. Everybody knows the story. So we have an abbreviated version that everybody else understood when they heard it. Those are the two possibilities. Okay? And we're, we're, as usual, we're going to go with both and see which one we like better. <laughs> All right. yud hey vav hey seeks to kill somebody. So Tzipporah takes a flint and circumcises her son then takes the foreskin and touches it to whose legs? <laughs> we don't know. We don't know. She either touches it to Moshe's legs or she touches it to the infant's legs. There's one other possibility. Is Moshe yes. Yeah, the child's leg. So either one of the children, the children she circumcised, presumably, it's dumb to put it on the kid you haven't circumcised, I would think. So either Moses or the baby or the apparition. How do they know something's going to kill Moshe? How do they know? yod vav seeks to kill Moshe. God doesn't say anything. What? How does, how does Sipporah know to do anything? Why does she know there? Why does she think there's any danger? She's a goddess. She, she's a goddess. very nice, Susan. Very nice. So she is the daughter of the high priest of Midian. Likely, she is a priestess. That would make perfect sense, would it not? She's been raised in the home of the high priest. Cultically, she probably has a very important position. She somehow apprehends that something terrible is about to happen. She, we don't have anything from Moshe. Zero, FS, nothing. 
No reaction, no response, no words, no nothing. Either they both get what's happening and Moshe has no clue what to do, or it's Tzipora who puts together the signs, right, that that something's coming after somebody (laughs) in, in her family. And she knows immediately what to do, probably from a cultic position of authority. She knows what to do. This is not a bris. This is a bris. Where did it come from? Is this the first bris that we have reference to or in the the Torah? Abraham is the first. (laughs) All the Hebrews were circumcised. If you were of the family of Abraham, you were circumcised. Here, they're in Egypt and Zippah is the daughter of a Midianite. Is that part of their culture? Ah, so let's hold that question for one second. It's a good question. Let's hold it for a second. She, so she knows immediately what to do. She does it. She doesn't hesitate. She does it. Possibly she's holding the foreskin, right, and touching it to whatever she has apprehended to be evidence of the threat. Right? Evidence of what? The threat. That, those are the only possibilities, really. Right? But it, cha- it changes a little bit the story depending on who God is coming after and who she touches the foreskin to. It changes it a little bit. Yeah, why, why is this going to help? The, 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 the blood, I know. Ah, blood. yes, we're going to get there. Mm-hmm. I think that marriage is quite symbolic. I mean, uh, ah. Moses being a Levite, Levite and Zipporah being the daughter of the high priest, that, that's an interesting bond to me. In these cultures, these marriages are very symbolic. So, so what's the symbolic of in our case? Well, I mean, power. I mean, spiritual power. Mm-hmm. In a way, I mean, the couple is going to be able to do something. <coughs> All right. So. Chatan. She takes the foreskin, touches it to somebody's legs, and says, You are now a Chatan Damim. Right? You are now a, we're not going to translate this yet, but this is plural for blood. Okay. A groom, you are a groom of blood to me. Okay? So this could seem... <laughs> this is what makes people think, obviously, it is Moses' legs that are involved because he is, to her, a chatan. But linguistically, some scholars say chatan is never used for the role of the male to the female in a marriage. It's only used about in-laws. The in-laws would say, he is the chatan to my daughter. It would never say that Moshe was, that I'm the chatan of Tzipora. Is there a different word for husband? Uh, Baal or ish, but that they don't seem the scholars believe there's no that it's not it's not used there's not another word used commonly self indicating or indicating the role right it's it's either a legal status that they're talking about or chatan and chatan means by the in-laws right you're a chatan by your in-laws does that make sense okay if you're a chatan oh I just lost the page if you're a chatan and you're def- and the definition of that has to do with in-laws then whose legs would she be touching the foreskin to if we use it that way let's just go with that interpretation if chatan is about in-laws whose legs is she touching the foreskin to the kids because her child is going to become a chatan. 
Someday. Her someday, her son will be a chatan. He will be, <clears throat> through in-laws, married. Right? So in that case, if chatan equals something about in-laws, right, and your, your kin status through marriage, then it has to be the infant or the child. But also the night before the Hebrews move out of Israel. <laughs> Mamet got there first. Okay. <laughs> Answering your question. All right, but we're, we're going to get there. Um, but, but we cannot uh, ignore the fact that Chatan in Arabic means circumcision. And and it means it's not unrelated. It means protection. Now what does it mean? Now she's saying you you are a chatan damim to me. Now who could it be that she's touching? If it's Moses, what is she saying? You are protected now. Why? Why would Moshe now be protected because Tsipora circumcised her son? She applies Abraham's. Go, go to where you were going earlier. What's about to happen? Well, the night before, uh, uh-huh. yeah, they flee out of Egypt. Uh-huh. God tells them to, uh, to put blood on the yeah, door. To put blood on the doorposts, right? And what is that going to do? Putting blood on the doorpost is going to do what? So it's going to protect whoever's in that house, right? And what are they doing that night? What are the Israelites doing that night? No, they're not fleeing yet. What are they doing? Why are they eating? It's the first Passover, people, remember? They're to eat unleavened bread and roasted meat with their loins girded, ready to go. They celebrate the first Passover while they're slaves in Egypt. Only people who are circumcised can participate in the Passover meal. If that's the case, and Moshe's son had not been circumcised, Moshe's son could not participate in the Passover meal and therefore could not be one of the people who were protected and who were going to leave. He would have died. Therefore, possibly, this means she touches the foreskin to her son's legs and says, now you are protected and will be protected that night. And does this also protect the women who hold the foreskin? So maybe there's a role here of protection as well for the females who what? Who hold the foreskin gave birth to the baby. Okay. So maybe there's some ritual we don't know about. Huh? She becomes a Hebrew herself. No, she does not. She does not become a Hebrew. There are two sons. So one son was already circumcised? When was Moses circumcised? When he was born, he was circumcised. But if she doesn't become a Hebrew, how is she protected that night? So we don't know anything about her status being protected. It's the firstborn who are protected. Oh. Right? The, the slaying of the firstborn happens all over Egypt. What exempts any firstborn from dying that night yeah. is the blood on the doorposts. It's the blood of protection. And now we have a bloody incident here. Right? It, it, they absolutely parallel, right? It's a chiastic structure. So danger to the firstborn, blood. 
blood, danger to the firstborn, right? It's a chiastic structure. So it, they, these go together. These texts absolutely go together that Moshe, okay, but let's take it further because there's, there's more here. So Moshe, so possibly she's saying now her son will be protected that night of the bloody protection thing. He'll be protected that night from death right? That's going to happen to firstborns now. So it has to be in that sense, Gershom, it has to be his firstborn, Mm -hmm. right? That we're talking about here, but let's go the other way. Let's go with, it is Moshe who is now protected. Why, why, how could it be that Moshe is now protected? What would have been the danger? What do we just say? God said, you're going to go to Pharaoh, and you're going to say, Pharaoh, Israel's my firstborn. You're putting my firstborn at risk. I'm taking your firstborn. How might Moshe have been in danger in that situation? Pharaoh could have killed him. Sure. <laughs> Possibly this ritual is God saying to Moshe, you cannot possibly stand before Pharaoh and say, right, Israel's my firstborn, let them go, and if not, I'm coming after yours, when you haven't even circumcised your own son. You haven't taken care of your firstborn. How can you go and stand before Pharaoh and demand anything about my firstborn and threaten his firstborn when you haven't, you haven't dealt with the protection to your own son. If circumcision is tied, if that blood is tied as we know it is to protection, some kind of even saving power possibly early on, right, in Israelite culture, then Moshe has to deal with his own firstborn first before he can stand before Pharaoh and say anything about Israel. What was Moses circumcised? Yes. 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 So. So why would he not have circumcised his firstborn? So. Because he didn't know. He wasn't. He didn't know he was a. He knew at this point. All right. So, what are the possibilities? He's living in Midian. Right. In the high priest of Midian's house, the mother of his child is Midianite. He assimilated. What, Linda? No, the Egyptians circumcised their children, but the Midianites didn't. We don't know. We don't know. But we know that she did. She, she circumcised that child. Now? Yeah. Now. now? There's no reason to believe it was her culture to circumcise. Yeah. Moshe's living in Midian as a Midianite. What, there's no understanding yet of like that he's not living as part of, first of all there's no Jews yet right there's no such thing as Jews you're just part of the Abrahamic lineage tribe he's maybe just found that out a few chapters ago at a bush in Midian well what does that mean all right, I'm a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and, and whatever. Okay, he knows nothing, but how presumably, about being raised as a Hebrew or what that even means. I mean, he was around Hebrews, right? But what does he know about what that actually means? Why would he, in some sense, circumcise his son if he didn't understand that to be important? But we assume he didn't understand it. Zipporah did understand. Zipporah understands something. Something. But she understood that this was serious. Yeah. 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 She might have. She could have. But it, Moshe doesn't get it. But even as an Egyptian, he should have circumstances. If he was living into Egyptian culture. He did. He grew up in it. But we don't know that he's living as an Egyptian in Midian. But he must Why have left he in the house? as an adult. Yeah. Why? Why? Sure, but 
But okay, let's go back though to Joseph, right? So Joseph who clearly completely assimilates. Possibly Moshe completely assimilates into Midianite culture. He's married the top of the top of Midian. Married at the top of the Midianite power structure. There's no reason to believe he had a deep attachment to Egyptian culture or what they did and possibly he deferred to the mother. She's a high priestess. If she doesn't want her son circumcised, Moshe's like, whatever you want, dear. Like, like, you can imagine that she has a lot of power in this relationship. Clearly, she has cultic familiarity and power. You don't just cut off a piece of somebody's body, particularly their genitalia, without knowing what you're doing. Right, right? Your, your own son? You're not going to do something like that if you don't know what you're doing, right? She knew how to do this. So she knew what to do and she knew how to do it and she did it quickly. Like boom, boom, surgery, done, right? So clearly Tsipora has cultic knowledge that we just don't have the tradition around anymore. This is to protect somebody. It's to protect somebody. We don't know who. We can read it a couple of ways. I read it. Tora wants, wants to tell us that mothers and women in the family are very important. Yeah. Well, I, I read it like that. I mean, we got it so well, I think for sure what we have is a remnant of a culture that believed that. We have a remnant of it. By this time, the patriarch has complete control over everybody in the house, but our women stay very involved. The mothers in our tradition are very powerful. Um, certainly, there are backstories as we've you know, studied la- this you know, book of Genesis this year. There are backstories we've lost to all of them, and I think Tsipora absolutely is one of them, whose backstory we just don't have. We've lost that material because it was a patriarchal tradition that chose what to preserve and what not but for sure we have you know a remnant here of a of a story that's very much about the mother the the you know the female head of household both being a cultic figure and being incredibly powerful around making a decision like that and right and discerning and knowing what to do in that moment and also acting right like if she hadn't done this the whole story would Correct. Yes, she saves. She saves somebody, right? And possibly Moshe. If she saves Moshe, she's just, in fact, saved the Jewish people. Yeah, in the bigger context of this, it doesn't answer how she knew this. But this is part of the crafting of a massive identity story. So if you have a baby that's in the water, literally, like symbolically. And who's the mother? Who's the father? Who's the nation? Who's this? Almost, it almost is like she knows more than he does. I and mean, he hasn't even—he's in—he is the process of which a whole group is going to find their identity. He doesn't even have that identity yet. She actually has more feeling for something that he is. It's actually a, even more of a setup. As he, there's a bush. What does that mean? Who is Abraham? I, what is my? It's—it's it's really a very it sets up even more of a plot twist or a. Or a, some kind of thing like he's, he, he doesn't have it yet, but she does. Right. And I mean, and one of my teachers of blessed memory, <laughs> Dr. Tikva Freimerkensky, suggests that it's only because Moshe was in Midian with Zipporah in his father in law's house that he has the theophany with Yahweh. That Moses is introduced to Yahweh through Midian, through Zipporah, and through Jethro. He, that's how he accesses Yudhei That he has no clue about any of this. He's been raised a spoiled Egyptian brat, a royal brat his whole life, who loses his temper and kills somebody. Right? He's not exactly leadership material uh, in terms of, well, we don't know anything about his you know, character or anything. And that it's, it's his time with Tsipora where he starts, right, he, he sees what an identity like that is. He sees what an identity to, means in relationship to the cult, in, in relationship to something bigger, right? Remember, he was raised with all the gods of Egypt. Um, 
the Midianite culture is closer, right, to Israelite culture than Egyptian culture was. Um, so yes, to your point, like there, there are lots of scholars who believe that it's only because of Midian that Moshe has this theophany. To the point that somebody raised a while ago about the role of women. This is, I can't count up the number, but I, I suspect it's, it's at least four times in the story of Moses that, that women play key roles. I'm going back even the first one that I can recall is the... Uh, the midwives, yes. Midwives. Was before this. First there's the midwives. These kids are, we couldn't even stop it. They're coming so fast. Then there's, uh, we just saw Miriam and the daughter of Pharaoh, right? Mm-hmm. And, and now we've got Zipporah. Mm-hmm. And if all of those hadn't <laughs> happened, uh, it, it's, it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a pretty clear story uh, that, that all these things happened in order for Moses to be, uh, to be there. Yes. I have spent the last five years exploring those texts with the women at Passover, at our Passover celebration, and that, that's exactly... That's ex- I've had five years of material because, um, because M- Moshe does not exist. The Jewish people do not exist without all of those women, without the women of the Exodus. They do not exist. I mean, obviously women are needed if you're going to get born. I'm not saying that. I'm saying right that Shifra and Puah save. It's like miracle after miracle. That's right. Say, and, but it's human, it's human action right, that allows for the miracles that are going to happen here too. Sipporah's action is what's going to affect the miracle, right, in, in Egypt to some extent. Like she's, she's impacting, right, what, what will be protective there. So she from Pua do it by saving, right, the babies, and Bat Paro does it by saving him in the water, by feeling compassion for him and taking an outsider, someone else, the other, and bringing him in as her own. Um, Miriam does it by presuming to speak to royalty as a slave, you know, to insert herself and save his life. Um, and is, is Miriam she is. So she's the only one of the four. She, Miriam, his sister, his sister. Yeah, the only one though is a Hebrew. The rest of the women and Yocheved, Yocheved, his mother, who hides him uh, and then figures out a way yeah. to put him into the water, into the Nile, right? You can't miss all those things about they were supposed to be drowned, so she puts him in the water, right? So all of that, um, so, and now Tzipporah. So the story then is the product, Moses is the product of women doing yes. these actions Yes, yes, and I mean, and it's even stronger and deeper, right, that these women should have been enemies, some of them, right, but it's women saying we will not buy the paradigm that says we have to work against each other because that's how the men in charge have set it up, right, so because Shifra and Pua, we don't know if they're Hebrews, we're not told, they are the midwives to the Hebrew women. That's all we know. Are they Egyptian? Then the story is all the more powerful in some ways, that they defy Pharaoh and save Hebrew babies by using Pharaoh's xenophobia against him. They're not like Egyptian women. They drop, they drop them in the field. Before we can get there, they're like cattle. right? So they use Pharaoh's own xenophobia against him. Um, if they're Hebrew midwives, it would make sense that they're Hebrews because why would you have Egyptian women serving Hebrew women on some level unless you want them to be spies? Um, if they're Hebrew women, then they're incredibly brave Hebrew. E- either way, like if they're Egyptian women, they're working with right, saving <coughs> Hebrew babies and defying Pharaoh to his face. And even if they're not, we've got Bat Paro, right, who refuses to see this baby somehow as disposable because it's other. Capital O, the enemy, capital E. Amy, are you asserting that this idea of circumcision goes back to Hammurabi, that it's traced through no. priestesses, and really the Hebrew is the beneficiary of, of that culture? Mm-mm. No, I'm not. You're not? No. So this is unique to the Hebrew? 
No. Circumcision is known in the region. It's not unique to Hebrews. So, okay, so let's be careful our language. So, it's not venerated. It is understood to be protective. Blood is protective. Menstrual blood is extremely powerful, which is why later male patriarchal culture isolates women when they're menstruating because they're terrified of the power of menstrual blood. So all blood, menstrual blood, the blood of circumcision, the blood of sacrifice. This is about sacrifice. 100%. So not circumcision, but blood. Just blood. Blood. Now, when were people circumcised? In Egypt, between three and six years old. Sometimes in other places, it was premarital. It was a preparation for marriage, which makes this all the more compelling in terms of it, if it's chatan, then it makes it compelling that it is Gershom she's talking about because he he will be, through this act, prepared to marry, right? So it was understood that the blood of circumcision, menstrual blood, blood in general, was incredibly powerful. And of course, we see in the Israelite cult, this is going to become the means by which they are forgiven. This is how you affect getting rid of what sin causes. Distance between the divine and this realm because the contaminant of sin has put, the, the holy can't exist where that is, right? So you have to have blood involved for there to be any kind of potency to what's happening, to the ritual that's happening. Remember, the, the leper is gonna be cleansed by snapping the neck of a bird, right? And then we have blood involved. It's a, so it's not that it was venerated, it's that it was understood in the ancient world that blood is the life force and therefore has the ability to protect, to affect cleansing, to affect, right, certain things. That, that disappears with the birth of rabbinic Judaism, from Judaism. Yes. Although it continues with Christianity. Yes. Right. Yeah. So this is what we said last week, right? That that there are that blood stops being the mechanism for atonement for all those things for Jews, but it is preserved. The Israelite understanding of that is preserved in the church. It goes directly to biblical religion, right? That it's Jews branched off this way, Christianity branched off this way. And they kept those rituals. It is still the blood that atones in Christianity, the blood of Christ that one drinks at mass, right? That is what affects the atonement. So there are, so there are still billions of people who understand this to continue to be reality, right? We, we tend to talk about it like it's something that those people, right, back then thought of, but the, there are still so many people who, who believe that this is, that it's only blood that has the power to, right, the sacrifice that has the power to redeem from, in their words, redeem from sin. We don't use redeem and sin together. In, in the Middle Ages, wasn't there this anti-Semitic idea that Jews were drinking yes, of blood, course. Like yes. of course, yes, and abusing yes. the power of blood? Of course. Which was not our idea, it was their idea. <laughs> we got rid of that a long time ago. All right. So was it Babylonian then? Circumcision from from the from Sinai, circumcision is covenantal. 
It is the covenant in the flesh. It goes back to Abraham. Abraham, I mean, it's the covenant then, but, but Sinai, I mean, it, it, it becomes the sign of the covenant in the flesh. So it, it's never referenced ever in Torah, ever as protective, ever. We are assigning it that value here. Well, did the ra- is that what Burke is saying? Is it, that's what the rabbis... I said by the, by the time of rabbinic Judaism, which I think, as, as Rabbi Bernstein pointed out, is kind of a different religion from what we're talking yeah. about here, yeah. the idea of blood... It's a very interesting question. So why don't we hear more about Gershom and Eliezer? I think partly it is an argument against the prophetic role being in any way inherited. They don't matter. They don't matter. They are nothing. Not in a bad way. They just... They don't need to get mentioned because they don't matter. They're his sons, right? And so I think it's a purposeful argument, yes, against the role of the prophet being somehow passed on from father to son. It's Joshua who is Moses' protege, right? It's, It's Joshua who's always at Moshe's side, we're told. And it's to him that Moshe passes the zappage, Right from Sinai, he puts his hands on him and does smicha. Right, he passes on the um, and it's it's the spirit of God that's in Joshua and later in David. Right, you know that it it has to be the person themselves that merits the role of priest. It's about their character. It's about about their ability to access, right, that other realm, the realm from which prophecy comes. Uh, and so th- in a sense, they have to earn it. it. It's not that Torah doesn't believe in inheritance of, of roles because we have the priest. And Aaron, his authority goes directly to his sons and only to his sons. No one else can be a priest. So it's not that Torah denigrates that system, it's that Torah is very clear which gets inherited how. And so I think actually it's, it's a deep, it's a balance of powers. It's a balance of powers. That you have the inherited priestly line that's not gonna change. Nobody can become a priest. You get born a priest. Only. And you have the prophet who can only come into authority as a prophet, who can only be a prophet because God chooses them because of who they are. You cannot inherit it. And no one ever does, right? We never get anyone's son being a prophet. And so, so, so I think it's actually the balance of those kinds of powers. The one says we have to keep the trains running on time and it just clips along like this and this is what you do and you change the oil and you check the brakes and you make sure the electricity's working and you make... Right? And it clips along. You light the menorah, you have the showbread, you do the sacrifices, you wash your... You do all the temple rituals. And you have the prophet whose role is to say, y'all are screwing it all up. All you care about is keeping the trains running on time. Where are the trains going? Has anybody checked? Did they get there? Are the people happy with their experience on the train? Like, what's the point of travel? Right, so, so it's kind of this balance of needing things to be regular and, and, and continue and all of the things that regularity means and, is, and is, that's great for us, routine. And you have the prophets saying, but you can't just focus on that. What is your sacrifices to me, says Isaiah? 
the prophet, right? The great prophet. What do your sacrifices mean to me when you're you know, treating the poor unjustly, right? And, and you're turning away from the people who are suffering, really? Who cares about your sacrifices? So I think it's a built-in checks and balance. I think I've said this to you before, but and now we ask the rabbi to be both. <laughs> Keep my micha mocha melody or I'm out of here. It better stay the same. Give me a lachadodi I don't know and I'm walking, right? It better all stay the same like I like it. Better go on exactly like I like it. What do you mean we're changing the start time to seven o'clock from 7.30? I'm not coming then. So, right, there's that. But then we're all... And the board meetings and the executive committee meetings and everything that happens on there. And we're supposed to be over here going, y'all are focused on all the wrong things. Who cares if it's seven o'clock? Are they having an experience? Do they like what's happening? Sure, they know that lechadodi, but do they know what lechadodi means? Like, are they welcoming the beloved into their hearts and into their lives? Are we doing that as a community? I don't think so. We're having another meeting, and we're having another budget conversation, and we're having, and we're focused on all. Okay, you want one person to do both of those? Are you asking for a raise? <laughs> 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 so I guess my point is we have we have lost we've lost the the tension between those that really makes for the best of both right because they they play off each other and so instead what we often have in contemporary Jewish community is this right the people who want to be about tikkun olam and we want to change the world and who cares about lechadodi, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Arguing with the folks who are like, why are we out there doing justice work in the world? There are plenty of people doing that. We can go do that as Americans. We can do that as citizens. Here, we're supposed to be about lechadodi. Mm-hmm. And so it creates an inc- a tension within the organization that we have to be creative about how to hold because there is a real and true struggle over resources. Time, space, clergy time, right? The, the resources it takes to run programs, we're, we're competing for the same audience, so it's another e-blast, right? And so we, we feel this real push-pull you know, within the institution, and we're not great at, at, all the time, figuring out how to do both of those. But that's what it's gonna take. That's what it's always taken, right? Uh, so, all right, so where are we? So we, we are coming to the end of the first third, right, of, of our story of Exodus. And we have somebody in danger. Sipora somehow understands that and somehow figures out how it is that she can deliver uh, her family safely. So this blood rite is going to set up either Gershom's protection from the blood rite in Egypt or is going to give Moshe the authority to perform the blood rite in Egypt, right? In either case, it is very clear that this blood here ties directly into the sacrifice that's going to happen. Uh, That's going to mean the blood, right? So that killing, um, that sacrifice, that blood, and of course then the the institutionalized sacrifice that will uh, ensure Israel's survival and Israel being close to its God, which is, of course, the only way that Israel understands that it can be safe. So Moshe is about to return to Egypt, um, and my notes say here uh, that it is a preview of the denouement of the drama As a result, the narrative exhibits the structure of an inclusio. It suggests on the eve of Moses' return to Egypt what will happen at his final departure. Right, so this this kind of bookends, right, that this blood ritual is the night of his return, like the beginning of his Egypt experience, second (laughs) Egypt experience, and the last experience that he's going to have in Egypt will be the blood, the protective blood on the doorposts. So you, that's the end. Then, of course, here sets the beginning of that, which has to be right, a ritual about blood and protection. 
uh, and the kind of courage that it will take for the people uh, to walk into that. Because it's gonna be just like Zipporah had to leap with the courage and trust that this was the right thing to do, the Israelites are gonna have to do the same thing. They're in Egypt when they kill that animal and announce with a great big sign over the door, we're with him, we're with the crazy guy who says we're leaving in the morning. <laughs> right, so Tzipora's act, her, quick, her quickness to act, her surety, her, her confidence, and her, her being willing to do it um, saves somebody here and delivers them from the destroyer, whoever the destroyer is. It's, it's gonna be God too who's the destroyer in Egypt. God is the destroyer here. It has to be because it is God who's gonna affect the destruction of the firstborn in Egypt. So here the blood, she, the, she, her action protects one of them from the destroyer. The same exact thing is gonna be demanded of every Israelite who leaves. To be protected from the destroyer, they have to have the courage and the surety and the, the certainty that Zipporah does to slaughter that animal that's been out in the backyard for four days. Um, with everyone watching and put that blood on their doorpost. This, this is who we, this is how we become who we are because the folks who weren't ready to do that didn't make it. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.